It's 4 o'clock on a Monday, and you know what that means, don't you? It's time for another exciting episode of Taxi TV Live. Yeah, baby. Woohoo! And the crowd goes wild. Hello, everybody. Let me get the chat room open. There you guys are. Wow, nice full house today. And I'd like to welcome our special guest today, Mr. Jai Joseph. <laughs> So I, I've known Jai for like 20 years. He used to live in L.A., was one of the uh, better-known uh, song coaches. Uh, why don't you give us a little background on yourself? I could read the bio, but uh, go ahead, give us a little background. And you now live in Marin County in uh, Northern California. I do. I you do. bailed on Los Angeles. Took me a while, but I did, yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was a pro writer in L.A. for almost 50 years. Um, I've written for top 10 hit artists. I've co-written with nine different writers with number one hits. I've had about 100 songs placed in film and TV. I've been a coach for over 40 years. I taught at UCLA. Uh, people I've coached have had major uh, major label CDs and songs on the Billboard charts and et cetera, et cetera. And I have, I have quit writing now. I'm retired from the writing part, but I'm very active in coaching. I have a very active coaching, international coaching practice, pretty much on Zoom these days, like everything else. <laughs> Um, cool. So how often do you teach? I mean, are you like doing classes and seminars and privates every day now? Uh, well, I could if I wanted to, but I don't. I'm, I'm semi-retired, as, as it were. Uh, yeah. I, I, I teach uh, private students full-time three days a week, and I have a couple of workshops and seminars, and I do events like this. I just spoke at a big national expo, and you know, I'm, I have an active teaching practice, but not as active as it was when I was in L.A. Got it. I'm trying um, to retire, you know, I'm trying to chill. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's a ways <laughs> down the road for me, but I, I fantasize. <laughs> anyway, it's gr great to see you. I'm glad we reconnected. Glad to have you here today. So Jai has a new seminar called Secrets of Successful Songwriting, and uh, I've never heard it, and I'm guessing that most of you guys, if not 100% of you guys, haven't heard it today, and uh, he's agreed to just do the seminar, so I'm going to kick back and let him do all the work, and then we should have about 25 minutes at the end of this where we can do Q&A with Jai. Uh, so go ahead and do your thing. Well, thank you, and I, I, I can't see the chat room, so if you have some urgent question about what I'm doing, just shoot it. I guess Michael can see it and relay it to me. Otherwise, yep. I'll just shoot on through. All um, right. I, this is interesting for me because I, I taught at the road rally for I don't know how many consecutive years, uh, 15, I guess, consecutive years, and then I moved up here. But I think in the entire time, Michael's never heard a complete workshop that I've done from beginning to end. So this is really interesting for me. To have Actually, Michael I, I did hear one, uh, oh, which you was you, you, you did a melody thing one year that I sat in on, and I was really, really enamored with it. You did a great job. That's why I asked you to join us today. Well, thank you. I think I'm, I'm, I'm even better now. <laughs> okay. I'll be the judge of that, young man. <laughs> no, I'm sure you're great. Well, every, everything is cool, except I don't think you get to call me young man. <laughs> <laughs> All right, young man. Uh, let's move on here. So, uh, welcome, everybody. Uh, this is strange because I can't see you either, and I play so much off audience feedback, but I'll just assume you're all out there and having a good time and learning about this. So, uh, this is called Secrets of Successful Songwriting, 
And the way it's going to break down is I'm going to philosophize for about 10 or 15 minutes, talk about some background that's actually very, very important. And then I'm going to get to some really specific hands-on tools that you can work with in each of your songs as you're writing them that will make a big difference. So this is the philosophical, but it's really the important part because it's the under, it underlines everything I say about the tools. So let me tell you what the biggest single secret of being a successful songwriter is. So think about your favorite song. And if you don't have a favorite, think about one of your favorite songs. Now my question is, why is it your favorite song? And I would bet it's not your favorite song because of the way it made the writer feel when the writer was writing it. I would bet that it's your favorite song because of the way it makes you feel when you listen to it. And that's the big secret of successful songwriting. Pro songwriters know that it's about what you make the listener feel, not about what you feel when you're writing it. And the best way I've ever heard that expressed, I've been, I've done so many conferences and when I was very active, I used to travel all over the country and do these songwriting conferences all over the place. Of course, the road rally being one of them. And at some, I can't even remember where this happened, but at some songwriting conference, I was on a panel with a songwriter named Eric Bazilian, who is best known for having written What If God Was One of Us for Joan Osborne, but has written many other great songs. And Eric just kind of said this in passing while we were on the panel. And I came up to him afterwards and I said, Eric, you know I teach songwriting. He said, yeah. I said, well, I want to use that thing that you said in every songwriting workshop I ever teach. And so here is one, and I'm about to say it. And if you want to write anything down from what I say today, this is what to write down. As a songwriter, don't write what you want to say. Write what you would want to hear. That's really deep. Don't write what you want to say, write what you would want to hear. Because songwriting, professional songwriting, is not about self-expression. It's about learning to express in a way that makes the listener feel and get and hear what it is that you want to say. And the purpose of everything I teach is to make your songs resonate more with the listener. And in my workshops, I call it listening with listeners' ears. That's the difference between an amateur writer, a developing writer. They just feel it, you know. But a professional writer knows how to make it have an impact on the listener. And that's what the techniques I'm going to do, teach you about today will do. Will help you impact the listener. So, the most important thing I say all day will be this. All these techniques that I'm going to teach you, don't ever think about them when you're writing a song. Seriously. And I'll tell you why. So uh, I live in this beautiful town up here. It's called Fairfax. If any of you have ever heard of it, it's a beautiful little town in Marin, Hip Marin, uh, Marin County. It's an ex-hippie town. It's a small little town. The people who live here, we call it Mayberry on Acid. It's a really cool little town. And uh, I met one of my neighbors the other day. He, he had heard, oh, I, so um, for a hobby, which is now, uh, my life is a lot about my hobbies, I play jazz guitar and I have a jazz band. And we were playing on my porch because there's no place else to play. And my neighbor came up to me and he said, 
you know, I, I've heard you rehearse with this band before too, and, and I'm, a, I'm a guitar player too. I said, oh really? Well, let me get to know you. I want to get to know my neighbors better. And uh, he said, yeah, and I write songs. I said, oh really? Tell me. And he said, yeah, you know, songs have been coming through me since I was like eight years old, and they just come through me and I write them down. And I said, well, then what do you do with them? He said, I don't know really. I'm, I've recorded some, and I hope someone somewhere someday likes one and, and it gets out there somehow. And what he's talking about is what I call the muse. It's like that moment of inspiration. You know that moment of inspiration when a song hits you and you go, ah, that could be a song. Wow, I'm hearing it. I'm looking at Michael Laskow's clock and looking at the clock. Wow, I've looked at the clock before. And then, then suddenly a song comes and music comes. And that's the muse. That's the inspiration. That's what gives you the song. And by the way, I wish I, wish I could see a show of hands because I would ask. And I always ask in every workshop, what are the two places where the muse lives, where the muse strikes most of the time? In every workshop I've ever done for decades, I always get the same two answers, the shower and the car. <laughs> right? Absolutely. Right. But the muse comes and it gives you this great inspiration. And then what do you do with it? Because you see the biggest mistake that developing writers can make is thinking that what the muse gives you is the finished product. It's not, it's the most important thing. It's the inspiration, but it's not the finished product. Because professional writers also have something which I call the editor. And the editor is what takes the muse and edits it into something that will impact the listener and give them that same feeling that you had when you wrote it. And this workshop is for your editor. So I would like everybody to take a moment, get in touch with your muse and thank your muse for everything it does for you and tell it to take a nice little walk because it's not gonna to wanna to hear anything I say today. Because what I say today, it's not, it's not for the muse. The best way I heard this expressed, I was at another conference speaking. I was on a panel with a wonderful writer named Beth Nielsen Chapman. I don't know if any of you are familiar with her. She's incredible. She's had about five number one hits. She's also a singer songwriter, has had a great album out on her own. But I, I brought up the subject of the muse and the editor on the panel and she said, oh, yeah, the way I think of it is when I'm writing a song, I'm driving in my car and the muse is sitting next to me and I've tied up the editor and put him in the trunk so he can't hear anything. And the muse and I have this wonderful conversation and then when we're done, I let the muse off at a nice coffee shop so she can hang out or take a walk in the woods. Then I untie the editor, bring him out from the trunk, sit him down next to me and say, okay, here's the raw material we got. How do I make this into a great song that everybody will resonate with? And excuse the pronouns. I use feminine pronoun for the muse, masculine pronoun for the editor. You're welcome to use whatever you want, or you can be very 21st century and use they any way you want to do it. But that's, that's what I'm talking about. And that's the difference between a developing writer and a professional writer is that professional writers have an editor that will take what the muse gives them and use these techniques to make it more attractive to a large audience. Now, the second biggest mistake, remember the big, I said the biggest mistake you can make is thinking what the muse gives you is a finished product. The second biggest mistake you can make is using your editor to write a song. 
saying, oh, well, Jai said this about melody and Jai said this about lyrics. So I'm going to sit down and try to put this about melody and this about lyrics into a song. And I'm going to sit down and I'm going to write something. Ain't going to work because there won't be any inspiration in it. You can't write a song from the editor. That's why I said, don't ever think about the techniques I teach today when you're writing a song. What you do is think about them when you're editing the song to make them more accessible to the audience. Is that making sense? Yes. Yes. Somebody in the chat room just said, ooh, I'm getting an echo. Whoa, Whoa, man. man. <laughs> Big echo. And Jai doesn't have headphones, if you can believe that. He's in the music industry, has no headphones. Um, anyway, yeah, somebody said, that makes such good sense. So there you go. Well, good. I'm glad. Thanks. Thanks for the feedback, Michael. I appreciate it. So this is a class for your editor. Don't use it when you're writing, but use it immediately after you get the message from your muse so that you can change it and make it into a, something that will be attractive to the audience so that when the listener hears it, they'll feel exactly the same thing you did when the muse hit you. All right? Got cool. it. So there are two elements of the song. There's music and there's lyrics. And we're gonna talk about both. We're gonna talk about how to create a successful song musically and how to create a successful song lyrically. So I wanna, I want to start with this quote, which is one of my favorite quotes about music and lyrics. And it's from a movie called Music and Lyrics. Anybody see that movie? Yes. Yeah, it's a great movie. It's uh, uh, Drew Barrymore and Hugh Grant. And uh, Hugh Grant plays a guy who was successful in a band. And uh, now the band broke up and he's trying to make it on his own. And he's having a hard time because he's better at the music than the lyrics. And he meets Drew Barrymore, who writes lyrics. And it's a romantic comedy, a rom-com. And they fall in love and all this great stuff happens and blah, 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 blah. But at one time, when they're first doing one of their first sessions, you know, she says to him, don't you get it? Music is like seeing someone for the first time, the physical attraction, the sexiness. But then as you get to know that person, that's the lyrics, their story, who they are underneath. And it's the combination of the two that makes it magical. So that's what we're going to talk about, the attractiveness of the music and the story of the lyrics and how they come together. By the way, I think Drew and Hugh met each other at a taxi road rally. You're kidding. kidding. No, I am kidding. I'm just... <laughs> I would believe it. A lot of great... <laughs> One of my students met someone at a taxi road rally that signed her to a record deal on Sony. So, you know, things like that happen. Yeah, well, tell her I said, thanks for letting us know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you got to tell me who that was later. I will. Um, so, uh, unfortunately, because of the technical aspect of this system, I have to play the music on speakers here, and then they're going to echo through. So I apologize in advance for the fidelity. I'm used to doing these workshops on Zoom where I can shoot the sound indirectly. So, But we're not talking about production quality anyway. We're talking about song quality. And probably most of the songs I play today you're going to know anyway. So we'll give it a shot. So I'm going to use a particular song as an example very frequently today about both musically and lyrically about what makes a song successful. And this song was uh, not only a top 10 hit, but it was also a breaker song. And I don't know if you're familiar with that term, breaker song, mm. but any song that uh, oh, um, Justin Bieber or Selena Gomez or Miranda Lambert, any song they record will chart 
because of who they are, because of their name, it's built in audience. A breaker song is the first song by an artist. Now it's never their first song because it takes 10 years to be an overnight success and people in the industry know who they've come through. But it's the first song that breaks an artist to the public where the public has never heard him or her before. And those have to be well-written songs because nobody's buying it based on the name of the artist because nobody's ever heard of the artist. And this was the breaker song for an artist named Her, H-E-R, which was nominated, it was a Grammy nominated for Song of the Year, which is a very select group of songs. And although it didn't win that award, the album that it came out on won her two Grammys and it was the featured song on the album. So I'm gonna play a verse in the chorus and maybe a couple of words of the second verse of this song. Uh, it's called Hard Place. I'm sure many of you are familiar with it. If not, just give it a listen. And then we're gonna talk about what musically made it successful. How's the volume, Michael? So far, so, so, far, good. so good. Good. I don't believe what you say, but I hate you on most days. You've been testing my faith, my patience, yeah. and you know that I be headstrong, but you know that you be dead wrong. Telling me to relax, I'm reacting. great song and uh, if you've ever seen her play live she's also an amazing lead guitarist on top of that vocal ability and that writing ability she's a very very amazingly talented person so music as Sophie Fisher the Drew Barrymore character says is about the attraction and that's a very attractive piece musically. So let's find out why. Well, the first part is easy. The first part has nothing to do with the editor. The song has to have a great hook, like a singable hook. Yes, I'm caught between your love and a hard place. And usually it will be your muse that gives you that hook. I have no editor tips about how to find a great hook. That is muse given. And that's the most important part, obviously. But the question is, how do you support that in a way that makes the whole song great and not the hook. And that's what we're gonna talk about right now. 
So I have a question for you. What would happen if I were to continue to present the remainder of this talk in the way I am speaking at this moment? I'd go make, I'd go a, make sandwich. a sandwich. <laughs> exactly. So you don't want that to happen while someone is playing your song. And one of the ways to do that is to have a contrast in pitch between the section of your songs. Now, if you listen to Hard Place, you'll notice the verse is way down at the bottom end. And the chorus. There's a contrast so you don't fall asleep, so you don't go make a sandwich. Right? Right. Right. So you want to have the chorus of the song generally pitched above the verse. Now, if the muse gives it to you that way, you're golden. If it doesn't, then you bring in your editor and say, well, this was a great gift you gave me, but the verse and the chorus are in the same range. What am I going to do? The obvious thing to do is you either lower the verse or you raise the pitch of the chorus. But there's some other things that you can do too. There's some other little tricks. Now, 90% of songs have that low verse, high chorus, but there's some other things you can do too. I want to play you a song that's been nominated this year for the Grammy for Song of the Year. And I want you to listen because you'll hear the beginning of the chorus is in exactly the same range as the verse. There's no contrast. So what does he do? This is Post Malone. Let's take a listen. same range. He hits the chorus and the chorus does not jump up from the verse. So then after that, starting on the third line of the chorus, he does this. Hear that? So he took the middle of the chorus and he took that up as the section to wake you up so you don't go out and get a sandwich. 
<laughs> wasn't the beginning of the chorus. It was part way through the chorus. But let's say you love your chorus and you don't want to change it. And you like the verse where it is and you like the chorus where it is and you work with your editor for God knows how long and your damn editor won't raise the chorus or lower the verse. Well, there's something else you can do. So I did a sneaky little thing here. I edited a major hit. It was the breaker hit actually for, it was the first number one hit for The weekend. And I did a very sneaky thing here. I did a little edit on it where it goes directly from the verse to the chorus and bypasses the pre-chorus. And I want you to listen because the verse and the chorus are in exactly the same range on my edit. So take a listen. When that chorus hits, it doesn't really hit because mm. it's in the same range as the verse. And what the weekend did was put in between that verse and in between that chorus, a pre-chorus that went high. So you have the verse right where it is when the muse came through, the chorus right where it is when the muse came through, and then you've got a pre-chorus in between that's a contrast. I, uh, if I was live at Taxi, I've actually given this part of the talk at the road rally where I bring up like two short blonde girls and I say, this is the verse and this is the chorus. How are we gonna make them be different? And then I find like some tall black guy in the audience and I bring him up and I put him right in the middle and see, now there's contrast. So if you can visualize that, here's the auditory version. Doesn't that chorus sound fresher now? Yep. yep. It's because of where you were in the pre-chorus. Went up and then came back down again. So, hey, John, can, I, yeah. can I interrupt, can I interrupt for, a for a second? Please. The window, the window that, that I sent, sent you with, with, the, the, with the link in it, is that, is that still, still open, open somewhere? somewhere? Uh, yes, I think it is. Can you can close, you close that? that? That may uh, kill a second. I think it will kill everything, though. Oh. oh. Uh, never mind. 
Uh, we'll try it if you want, but it's the same window that I'm seeing you in. Oh, don't do that. <laughs> All right. Sorry about the tech. It's weird. Sometimes Is everybody in I the chat the, room okay? Yeah, they're good. Sometimes I get the echo, sometimes I don't. All right, whatever. Well, well. Sorry to mess up your flow, dude. No, that's fine. No problem, man. We got what we got. We're, it's, it's a blessing that we have what we have, you know, that yep. we can be locked down and still be able to impart information to people. All right. So I want to talk about another important area of contrast that's much less spoken about than contrast in pitch. And that is contrast in something called the melodic rhythm, which is the rhythm of the melody. And if you want to know what your melodic rhythm is, what you do is you strip away the lyrics, you strip away the chords, and you strip away the pitches and everything else. All you do is clap out the rhythm of the melody. So this is Yesterday by the Beatles. Follow that? Okay, so we're going to talk about contrast and melodic rhythm, and I'm going to play just the beginning, the verse and the pre-chorus of Hard Place again, to show you how she used contrast and melodic rhythm between those sections. going to clap along to show you the melodic rhythm. Check that out. The verse goes. The pre-chorus goes. Hear the difference? That's contrast in melodic rhythm, and that's every bit as important as contrast in melodic pitch. It actually seems like that has become more important in today's songwriting that um, the big bombastic choruses of yesteryear are not as prevalent. There's some still out there, but exactly what you're talking about is kind of the, you know, the, the orange is the new black, if you will. <laughs> they're, they're both always important, but definitely in contemporary music, it's more rhythm oriented. And so the melodic rhythm between sections is more important. Absolutely. And it doesn't have to be like, it's like A in the pre-chorus and B in the verse, or A in the verse, B in the pre-chorus. You can also change it throughout. I'm gonna play you another song that's Grammy nominated for Song of the Year this year. And uh, the writer who is, uh, has, be, has moved in the last 
whatever it is, how long she's been around now, over 20 years, she's moved from like, all right, she's interesting to like, wow, her stuff is good. Uh, the verse has some short phrases and then some triplet phrases going back and forth. And then the verse has all these swing phrases. I'll, I'll play it for you and I'll clap along and you'll hear. contrast as it moves from section to section yeah. so the verse the verse starts with does that a few times and then it goes to this quarter note triplet thing that goes and then it repeats both of those and then in the chorus it starts with the same melodic rhythm in the chorus that it did in the verse but then it goes to this swing thing So as you're moving through the song, you're moving through a whole bunch of different melodic rhythms, which Taylor Swift is great at, really, really great at. And that's one of the things that made this album so good is that constant change in melodic rhythm from section to section of the song. So again, your muse might just give that to you. If it doesn't, crank out your editor and apply what we learned here today. One more thing I wanna, I wanna show you, one more example of that, and then I've got something else to talk about musically too. So what do you do if you have a verse and a chorus that you love that have very similar melodic rhythm? Here's an interesting solution. Ed Sheeran did this in Shape of You. In the verse, it goes very fast staccato notes. And the chorus does the same thing. very similar. So what did he do after the chorus? He put in this section that said nothing lyrically. The only lyrics were ooh-wah. But it went ooh-wah, 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 ooh. Why was that there? It didn't add anything to the song lyrically, but it gave you the oh, I can breathe now. I've had all this fast melodic rhythm coming. I'm just going to put that at the end of the chorus just to give you a chance to feel something a little different before I dive back into chock full of words. Does that make sense? Yes. All right. I guess, I guess I'm sort of asking the collective group, but you're the only one I can hear. Yeah, well, I'm watching it. They're enthralled, paying close attention, and yes, it's all making great sense. Good awesome. job. Thanks for the feedback. All right, I wanna to talk to you about something else. I wanna to talk to you about chords. I wanna to talk to you about contrast in harmonic rhythm. So generally up until you know the last 15 years or so, 
when Michael was talking about songs with bombastic choruses, yeah, they were writing songs that had rich harmonies in them. And, the, and there's a particular contrast you need to have in harmonic rhythm. Now, nowadays, a lot of songs like the Hearst song are written over four chord loops. But if you have four chord loops, there's still a change you can make with the melody to simulate a change in the harmonic rhythm. And I'm gonna show you one example of each. So let's start with the more traditionally written song, which has contrast in harmonic rhythm. Now harmonic rhythm means the number of chords in each measure. So I'm gonna show you, um, we're gonna take a more traditionally written song, which was uh, one of Adele's first number one hits, Someone Like You. And we're gonna take a look at how many chords are in each measure of that song. By the way, I was doing some research on the song because I knew I was gonna put it in this workshop and it was voted by the population of England, the, the British equivalent of Billboard put out a survey and it was voted the third most popular number one single in the last 60 years. That's post Beatles. Wow. So my trivia question, what were the two most popular number one singles that came in ahead of it? Uh, one of them, number one, was by an American solo artist, and number two was by a British band. Anyone in chat want to venture a guess? I'm looking to see if anybody gets it. I don't know. I wouldn't have known either if I hadn't read it. It was just interesting. Interesting Ro trivia. Robbie Hancock says Thriller. Oh, he's close. He's really close. He's got the right artist and the right album. Billy Jean. That's number one. From Good Mike job. S. Good job. And, and and the number two most popular single was from a British band. Something by U2? John Pearson? Posits? I'll, give you, I'll give you a big hint. It's got more melodic rhythm contrast than any song I've ever heard. Uh, the Hollies? Nope. Every Breath You Take? Red, nope, red that's wine. I will follow no. Oasis. Well, somebody got the number one. That's a good start. Yeah, a lot of Beatles being. Yeah, but this is all post Beatles. This is right. last six, last fifty years. Excuse me. Uh, Bohemian Rhapsody. That's it. Bingo. Wow, Ethan Lustig, <laughs> you win. Um, Jai will come over and give you a haircut. <laughs> Good oh, come on. Doesn't, he get, doesn't he get an extra two months tacked onto his taxi membership? If our database had let that let us do that, I probably would. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, anyway, that was a fun little adventure into trivia land. But I want to play. The, this was voted the third most popular number one single, and I want to play it for you. And if you can see me, um, I think they can see me, right? I can't see yes. them, but I'm going to count how many beats each chord gets as we go through this. Every chord is getting four beats, and that continues through the verse. Four beats per chord. Guess you gave me things 
Now we're coming to the pre-chorus, and it's going to start to be alternating. Some chords get two beats, some chords get four beats. Now, now we get to the now we get to the chorus. And suddenly, every chord gets two beats. So you see how the change in harmonic rhythm from section to section makes the song more interesting? In the verse, all chords get four beats. In the pre-chorus, half of them get two beats, half of them get four beats. In the chorus, all of them get two beats. And that's on a subconscious, subtle level, keeping you from getting a sandwich. <laughs> I, so when somebody's writing, are they consciously thinking of that stuff or does it no. become just through osmosis and repetitive uh is it muscle memory because they practice those techniques that those things come out, you know, in the editor mode? Yes. Well, you know, when you have a real pro songwriter, the, the muse and the editor have fused, you know, after many years. But in the beginning, no, if you write your songs with one chord per beat all the way through and because they felt good to you, that's fine. And then you go, you know what? The harmonic rhythm is a little boring. Let me take this measure and see if I can put two chords in that measure. Or let me see if I can take one chord and hold it out for eight beats and still have the song work. So you can edit that in if it doesn't come naturally. You know, one of the questions I get all the time, and it's an issue for a lot of our members, they hear feedback from the screeners about it, which is sounding contemporary. And what you're talking about right now is a major step toward contemporary, because back in the day, that didn't happen as much. Okay. I would say, actually, today, I'll take another step and get even more contemporary. Today, that's not happening at all because people are writing a lot. No, I'm not going to say at all. Let me correct that. That's not happening as much because today, people are writing songs on four-chord loops where it's the same four chords, one measure each through the whole song. And what do you do with that? What if you don't want to change songs? What if you want to write like... Um, like the Hers song, something that has the same four chords for one measure each. How do you make that interesting? And there's a way to do that. Would you like to hear it? Absolutely. <laughs> All right. We're going to take another song that was a breaker song for uh, Louis Capaldi. That's got a four chord, and you'll hear the introduction, you'll hear four chords on the piano, and that's all there is in the song, that same four chord loop. But by the way you place the melody on the four chord loop, you can make the four chord loop sound interesting. So what he does is, the first two phrases of the song take up the entire four chord loop. So one phrase is written over the entire four chord loop. That happens twice, and then all of a sudden it shifts from one phrase over each chord. 
and the, the melodic rhythm speeds up, even though the harmonic rhythm seem, stays the same. So it seems like there's a change in the harmonic rhythm when there's really not. It's really the way the melody is interacting with the harmonic rhythm. It's pretty deep stuff, but check it out. See if it makes sense to you. It is. That's like three visits to the shrink right there to let that absorb in. <laughs> <laughs> that's not a mere mention, you know, that that's a subject that you, you could do a, a semester on that, I think. Oh, yeah. Here's the four chord loop. That's all you're going to get. Now watch the first phrase. Whole phrase over four chords. Now he's going to switch it up. I need somebody to hear, somebody to know, somebody to have, somebody to hold. It's easy to say, but it's never So it sounds like the harmonic rhythm is quickening, doesn't it? Mm. But it's not. It's the same four chord loop. It's just the way he sat the melody on the harmonic. Right. Very interesting. Yeah. So. That's some good stuff on music. Want to do a little bit on lyrics too? Absolutely. Yeah, the people are loving it in the chat room, just to let you know. I know that you can't see the chat, but they are really loving it. Great. Well, this is what I do. This is my, you know, this is my work now that I'm done as a writer. I've been coaching people and helping them learn how to do this better on their own stuff. So let's talk about lyrics. What makes a successful lyric? Well, again, it's the same thing. It's the way that it impacts the listener. You want a listener to listen to your song, and it's not about the way it made you feel, it's the way it makes the listener feel. So I have actually uh, a whole system for doing that. It's called the Songwriter's Blueprint, and it's a download you can get on my website. I'll tell you more about it later. But I'll go ahead and mention the website now. Oh, okay. Well, um, I have a website. It's jijomusic.com. I think it's written in back of me somewhere. I have it in the studio here. I don't know if you can see it or not. We can't because you're cropped shoulder to shoulder for this two shot, but uh, Jijo Music and it's J-A-I-J-O music.com. Yep. And it's got, uh, not only does it have downloads of, of information like this, but it also, I do one-on-one -on -one coaching and you can connect you can connect with me just my email is really simple it's jai at jaijomusic.com so you can contact me i do one-on-one -on -one coaching i do a monthly workshop called song shop i think there may be some people in the chat room that are actually members of song shop i'm not sure they're taxi members and they said they might show up today so if you are welcome uh, and I have ongoing, all kinds of ongoing teaching feel free to just shoot me an email and say what do you got and what can i get that's the easiest way. Anyway, uh, as I was saying, the songwriter's blueprint is a lyric system that I have come up with. And the, it starts with something called a relatable premise. You have to have a relatable premise. So what does that mean? Well, premise, it means what the song is based on. If the song's meandering all over the place, no one's going to be interested. But if it's not relatable, no one's going to be interested. So let's say you want to write a song about your father. Okay. And you go, well, my father always wore a red tie 
and he went uh, he went to the office every day at nine, and he came home at six. And sometimes he would bring us ice cream, and that's that's a great story with a lot of details, but it's not relatable because my father didn't wear a red tie. My father didn't go to an office, and he's I guess he did bring us ice cream once in a while, but <laughs> but that's not a relatable premise, you see. And so it's of great interest to you and maybe your father, but nobody else. Now, if you write a song like Camilla Cabello's First Man, I don't know if you guys are familiar with that song, but it's about her going out on a date and her father is sending her out on the date with this guy driving up and she says, you know, I may or may not wind up loving this guy, but you'll always be the first man who loved me and I'll never forget you for that. Ah, that's something everybody can relate to. And so, that's what you want to have a relatable premise and you it's a really good idea i teach people when i'm first working with them to actually write out the premise of your song so let's talk about hard place again what is the relatable premise of that song it is your love is really powerful but it's really difficult too and i'm conflicted i don't know what to do now is that a relatable premise well if i was in a room here i would say so how many people are in that situation right now? Okay, how many people have ever been in that situation? Okay, how many people have a friend that's in that situation right now? Okay, how many people have a friend that's ever been in that situation? By that time, all the hands in the room were up. So it's a very relatable premise. Now, after you have a relatable premise, you have to have a title that reflects the relatable premise. And there's really two kinds of premises, although there's a gray area in between. There are common premises and uncommon premises. Most common premises are, I love you, I don't love you anymore, I miss you. You can come up with a few of the others that have been done over and over. I, I used to work with a songwriting teacher back when I lived in LA who said, there are eight stages in a relationship, starting with infatuation and ending with divorce. Hmm. <laughs> and you write about any one of those eight stages. You know, you're, so those are all relatable premises and common premises. So if you're going to have, if you're not going to have an uncommon premise, then you have to have an uncommon or fresh way of saying the premise, which her did in this song. She took the old saying, stuck between a rock and a hard place, and she changed it, stuck between your love and a hard place. Ah, that's a fresh way of saying, I'm conflicted. If the title of her song had been, I'm conflicted, it wouldn't have been as fresh or unique or interesting. But I'm stuck between your love and a hard place makes you go, hmm, right? That's what you want to have, a fresh, interesting, relatable premise. Then the next thing you need to do is to have an opening line that grabs your attention. If the opening line of her song was, I feel conflicted about you, it's like, whoops, you know, you see that? I mean, I used to be a screener at Taxi when I lived in LA for a while. And, you know, if I saw a first line like that in a song, I'd go, okay, well, Michael's paying me to listen to the whole thing, but I have to, but I know what I'm going to say about it right away. Mm -hmm. But if I saw an opening line that said, I want to believe what you say, but I hate you on most days, it's like, ooh, what's the next thing she's got to say? I'm in, I'm hooked, I'm interested. And the first line of a song is so important. You have to bring somebody in with that first line, make it a fresh, interesting, original way to say something. By the way, you know what the biggest enemy of today's songwriter is? I was going to say Congress. 
<laughs> Good one. But I, I try to leave politics out of the show, but uh, yeah, the mouse. <laughs> the mouse or your finger. Because you hear a fresh song that you've never heard before, and you hear the first line and you don't like it, it's click. Back when I was growing up, we had to take a record off the record player and put another one on to hear another song, or a cassette out of the cassette player and put another one in to hear a song. Now it's a click. No, when, when you first started listening to music, you had to take the wax cylinder off the machine. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not quite that old, Mike. <laughs> I know. But yes, you see what I'm saying? So you got to get them with your opening line. Get them. Get, a, get their interest. And that has to lead to a first verse that sets up the relatable premise. The whole first verse, the job of the verse is to set up the chorus and the relatable premise. I want to believe what you say, but I hate you most days. You've been testing my faith and my patience. You know that I'd be headstrong, but you know that you'd be dead wrong telling me to relax when I'm reacting because I'd rather fight than lose sleep at night. That all sets up. Your love is powerful, but it's really difficult in many ways, and I'm conflicted. All of that takes you to the chorus, and nothing in your verse should do anything but take you to the relatable premise. And you have to fill in the blanks for us, too, because we don't know. That's maybe the single biggest lyrical mistake I see in writers that come to me and developing writers is... Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a legal term. Now, I don't know much about law except what I see on TV. I was in court once. I was called to testify in a plagiarism case. That's true, actually. And I won't name the artist because too famous. But, but uh, I see a lot of law TV shows or a number of them. And there's a phrase called assuming facts, not in evidence. And that's what a lot of writers do. They make verses that make perfect sense to them but don't make sense to the listener because we weren't there, and it doesn't and it doesn't make any sense to us. You know, it's um. I have a sister, by the way, that teaches writing, not songwriting. She teaches actually memoir writing. She teaches at the University of New Mexico, and I was on the phone with her like a couple of days ago, and you know, this reminds me exactly of our phone conversation. You know what I mean? <laughs> don't you? You don't get it? Don't you get it? This is exactly like our phone conversation. <laughs> <laughs> but you weren't there, and right. the listener wasn't there. So you can't put, you want to put images in your writing, but not stuff that's so personal that it's not explained. You have to take us by the hand from that fresh individual opening line that you have that got our attention and take us through the story to the relatable premise. And that's your job as a lyric writer. You know, it what you're saying, I mean, I've, I've heard this many, many times from many of our friends, from Robin Frederick, from Ralph Murphy, from John Brahaney, uh, from Jason Bloom. I mean, these are the basic premises of, of songwriting, but they're also the premises uh, and the tools and the craft in writing a book frequently, in writing a stage play, in writing a screenplay. And yet musicians, and I'm sure this is true for the other creatives and the other disciplines, but they... If a musician went to a movie and the movie didn't have this structure of inviting you in and then filling in the details, all these things you're talking about, if that weren't in the movie, they would probably ask for a refund at the popcorn stand on the way out. But yet they don't remember to apply it to their songwriting, and they should. And there's a difference. It's funny. I had a friend in that when I lived in L.A. who was a scriptwriter, and we used to argue about whose job was harder. And he would say, he would say to me, "Well, 
it's nothing. It's like it's like um, uh, you you're when your lyric is finished, it's on one page. I have 187 pages on my screenplay. And I go, yeah, but if you want to introduce that they went out with each other many years ago, you have a whole scene that you can write. I've got six syllables that rhymes with way. <laughs> That's great. So it's definitely a, a, a harder job to put that into a tight little song. Absolutely. Uh, imagine putting it into a 30 second piece of music for a TV commercial. Even harder. Yeah, absolutely. So. Uh, one other thing I want to add about lyrics, and then I'm going to end by playing you another one of my little sneaky edits that I did about a before and after version of a song and show you how all these points that we talked about today are illustrated. And that will wrap it up unless you want to take questions or I can tell you more about whatever. But before I do, I want to tell you one more important thing in the song, and that is you want to have fresh rhymes. I don't want to hear, I love you so much, I long for your touch, one more time. Got to have fresh rhymes. We used to have, I, I teach a workshop up here called Song Shop, and I used to teach one in L.A. when I lived in L.A. And in my workshop in L.A., we had a cliché jar. It was this little, like, mason jar in the middle of the room. And anytime anybody would write a song with love and above, miss you and kiss you, change and rearrange, there was a whole list of them. be five bucks in the cliché jar. And about every six months, we'd empty it and have a party because we had enough money to, to buy supplies for a party after six months or so. Wow. So you want to avoid cliche rhymes. Listen to Hard Place. You've been testing my faith and my patience. You know that I'd be headstrong, but you know that you'd be dead wrong. Do I even have a choice when I'm going to have to pick my poison? I mean, those are rhymes that you want to put in your songs that get people's attention and make them interesting. And of course, the classic one is the chorus of, of uh, Billie Eilish's bad guy. You know, I'm that bad type, make your mama sad type, make your girlfriend mad type, might seduce your dad type. I mean, hmm. those are great rhymes. When you have those rhymes, it brings a song to life and it holds the listener's attention. So that's the last piece, having well, great fresh rhymes. It's hard, you know, uh, one of the things that many of the people who run country listings with taxis, they ask for fresh melodies. I don't want to hear melodies I've heard a hundred times or a thousand times before. Um, if I were a songwriter, which I'm not, it would be impossibly hard for me to come up with fresh melody. Well, maybe not impossible, but I have to work very long, very hard at it because I'm so conditioned by all the melodies I've absorbed in the past. They're yesterday's news coming up with fresh melodies that are tomorrow's hits is a whole different thing. Do you have, is there like one really great piece of advice for fresh melody generation? <laughs> I, I know in the beginning you said it's the muse. Uh, but but no, nobody's going to like it when I say it. Okay. But, but it just, it's just, if you haven't come up with one, you haven't tried long enough. Makes sense. You just have to, there's a great, one of my favorite scenes all time is from the movie Lawrence of Arabia, mm -hmm. you know, and Lawrence uh, is this genius man. He lights his pipe all the time and then he puts the match out on his hand and his aide who is in awe of him all the time says, well, I'm going to try it. And he lights the pipe and he puts the match out in his hands. He goes, ow, it hurts. And he says to Lawrence, what's the trick? And Lawrence goes, the trick is not minding that it hurts. <laughs> So if you spent two hours and you can't come up with a fresh melody, 
You should have spent three. Right. Get back up on the horse. Either stay that's, on the horse or get back up on it tomorrow. That's the trick. You know, don't quit. This is one of my little jaisms. If you're writing a song and you hear yourself say, that's good enough, it's not. Have you read any of Stephen Pressfield's books? No, I haven't. Okay, got a pencil handy? Uh, I do. All right, I just interviewed him. I, I read his books. Somebody turned me on to his books like 10 years ago, and I've been after him for several years. I finally got him to be the keynote interview at this year's Road Rally. Uh, buy the book, The War of Art, as soon as we're off the show today. The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. You are absolutely going to love the book. Um, he's got another book called Turning Pro. And uh, does anybody remember the name of the other book? And he wrote, he's also written screenplays like uh, what was the movie with Will Smith, the golf movie? Um, oh, man. Anyway, uh, you know, he's a legit writer. He wor worked for 27 years before he got his first screenplay. Bagger Vance. He wrote Bagger Vance. So... 27 years and the guy hung in there. You know, he dug ditches, he drove trucks, he did whatever he had to do, and he never gave up. And uh, he was such a great interview. Anyway, um, okay, well, let's take some questions. That was all Wait, no, great. No, no. What, I've, what? Got, I've got a, a, my big finale here. Oh, I thought you were done. I was going to say, no. I was kinda, all right, go no. for it. I've got a big finale. I, I told you it was coming. I warned you it was coming. Um, I've taken a song which is another song that's nominated for uh, Grammy nominated for song of the year this year. And I've done a sneaky edit on it to show you oh, how right. everything that we talk about today can apply. So uh, I'll tell you about the song that the, the uh, artist is JP Sachs and it was co-written with and features on vocals, Julia Michaels. And uh, you should all know who Julia Michaels is, but if you don't, you might've heard of Selena Gomez or Sean Mendez or Ed Sheeran or Kelly Clarkson or Demi Lovato. And she's written, co-written hits for all of those artists. And she co-wrote this song and it's a really great song. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna play for you now. I'm not gonna tell you what I did. I'll tell you what I did, but I'm not gonna tell you what worked and what didn't work about my edited version. The final version is amazing. When I heard this song, I was just stunned. It's a beautiful song, but I'm gonna play it without the pre-chorus. And you'll find it's really good. It has a lot of the things we talked about, but it's also missing some of the things we talked about. And the pre-chorus fixes every, quote, mistake that's in the song without it. So I'm just going to play you my edited version. This is not the real version of the song. This is Jai editing out the pre-chorus. And let's talk about what works and doesn't work. And then I'll play it with the pre-chorus, and you'll see the difference and how you can apply all the things we talked about today. So here's the edited version. I was distracted and in traffic. I didn't feel it when the earthquake happened, but it really got me thinking. Were you out drinking? Were you in the living room chilling, watching television? It's been a year and I think I figured out how, how to let you go and let communication die. But if the world is ending, you come over, right? You come over and you stay the night. Would you love me for the hell of it? All our fears would be irrelevant. If the world was ending, you come over, right? The sky be falling and I'd hold you tight. 
And there wouldn't be a reason why You would even have to say goodbye If the world was ending, you'd come over right Right? Now, just as it is, it's not a bad song. So let's talk about what's good about it. First of all, there's a great relatable premise. What an interesting thing to say, you know, that that I'm not with anybody right now and you, our relationship is finished, you and me, but you know what? If the world was ending, you'd be the one that I would want to stay with that last day. That's so, so powerful. And everybody has felt that about somebody at one point in their life. And the opening is beautiful. It's got a great visual scene and great rhymes. I was distracted. I was in traffic. Didn't feel it when the earthquake happened. What fresh rhymes. And then in the chorus, it's got my favorite rhyme of the year. Would you love me for the hell of it? All our fears would be irrelevant. Man, that's like, <laughs> right? Yeah, if you can use the word irrelevant in a song, you're talented. <laughs> and rhyme it with hell of it. Yeah. <laughs> okay, and the chords, by the way, that's a beautiful, the chords are gorgeous. They have ninths and elevenths and other notes and pedal point notes in the bass and secondary dominance and all the things that I teach my students harmonically. It's got every harmonic technique in the book used beautifully. But there's some things about it that don't work in that form without the pre-chorus. And what are they? Well, first of all, it's got that monotonous harmonic rhythm I talked about. Chord, 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 all at the same interval. And then it's got a very contracted vocal range. The range in the verse and the range in the chorus are almost exactly the same. So it doesn't pop. And then lyrically, there's a missing piece of this story to make me care about it. Like, one of my students listened to this edited version and goes, well, wait a minute, why did they break up? If, if, if that's who he thought of when he was in traffic, why did, he, why did he break up with her? And that's a very important missing piece of the story. And the pre-chorus fixes all that. It gives you a fresh harmonic rhythm that goes chord, 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 chord in very rapid succession. It gives you a vocal range that's higher. It's got a higher pitch than either the verse or the chorus. And it fills in the missing piece of the story about what happened and why they broke up. And what I want you to notice as you listen to it is not how good the pre-chorus is, but how much better the chorus sounds to you after you've heard the pre-chorus. It's like um, a woman can wear uh, a simple black dress and you go, Oh, you know, that dress is nice. And then all of a sudden, you know, two weeks later, she comes out in that dress with different jewelry and different accessories and different makeup. And you go, wow, honey, that dress is amazing. And she goes, well, that's the same dress I wore two weeks ago. Oh, it's not the dress. It's what sets up the dress. And that's what this pre-chorus does. It sets up the chorus. So I want you to notice as you listen to it, all the things I said that the pre-chorus does. Yes, it breaks up the monotonous harmonic rhythm. Yes, it has a wider vocal range. Yes, it fills in the missing pieces of the story, fills in the missing pieces of the story. But I want you to also notice how much more emotionally the chorus impacts you after having heard the pre-chorus. All right, so let's take a listen to the full version of the song. I was distracted and in traffic I didn't feel it when the earthquake happened But it really got me thinking Were you out drinking? 
Were you in the living room, chilling, watching television? It's been a year and I think I figured out how, how to let you go in the communication. Uh -huh. I know, you know, you know, you weren't down for forever and it's fine. I know, you know, you know, you weren't there for each other and it's fine. But if the world is standing, you come over, right? You come over and you stay the night. Would you love me for the hell of it? All our fears would be irrelevant. If the world was ending, you'd come over, right? The sky'd be falling and I'd hold you tight. And there wouldn't be a reason why. You would even have to say goodbye. If the world was ending, you'd come over, right? Right? If the world was ending, you would come over, right? I tried to imagine the reaction. Hear the difference? Anybody saying anything in the chat room? Um, um, there's a slight, there's delay. slight delay. Can you um, mute can whatever you? Whatever you're... There you go. There Thank you. Oh, maybe oh, not. Maybe not. Um, um, such. But... Tender vocals, Tender vocals emotional, emotional, emotional. What is it that makes the echo come back? Is there a, have you been muting something or bringing a fader nope. down or nothing, weird? nothing at all. Um, anyway, yeah, they're liking it. People are saying, man, I can't wait to go back and watch this episode again. I should <laughs> oh, charge for reruns. <laughs> you should pay me a percentage. There you go. <laughs> Spoken like a true songwriter. <laughs> but can, may I say a word or two again about yeah. My, my, yeah, if you do Absolutely. want more input like this on your songs, that's what I do. You can email me at jai at J-A-I-J-O music.com. In that website, jaijomusic.com, it talks about all the programs I have, one-on-one uh, -on -one coaching, ongoing workshops, downloads, all that stuff. There's my group called Song Shop, which will open again in February. And the cool thing about Song Shop now, it's on Zoom, so you don't have to be in the Bay Area to be part of it. So please uh, uh, avail yourself of my services. I would be really happy to work with you and find out more. And uh, the last thing I want to say, the final reminder, and then we can open it up to questions or whatever you like, Michael, is remember, don't think about these things when you're writing, because it will mess you up. Just let the muse inspire you and then take all this information and use it to rewrite. And hopefully you'll have a successful song that will impact millions of people. Great stuff, Jai. Um, I'm going to open it up to questions. I know there's going to be a slight delay till I see him uh, popping up in the chat room, but something I'd like to address with somebody half an hour ago said universal lyrics, um, they felt like it was all about relatability. And while you could gather that from the name Universal Lyrics, in the context of film and TV, yes, that relatability needs to be there, but it also means generalizing rather than saying, I love you because the way you look at me with those liquidy blue eyes and the way you smell, all those specifics make it fairly unusable in a film or TV scene because the person may not have blue eyes, the person, you know, whatever. The details probably won't line up with the scene or the script or the action. 
So in the context of film and TV, universal lyrics means that those details are taken out. In the context of straight up songwriting, as Jai was saying, um, it, it's about relatability. So I just want- Can I say to, something about that? Yeah, absolutely. Because I actually disagree. Okay, why? And I want to tell you about, I'm going to give you a great example. This was uh, a song that was one of my first uh, epiphanies when I saw this song on, in a movie. Uh, it was a movie called Two Days in LA, which uh, starred Danny Aiello. And it was about this kind of a, not really nasty, but slimy, sleazy character who was always scamming everybody and, and what's in it for me and how can I get something out of it? And there's this one scene where there's a one woman once way in his past that he once actually loved and she died. And he's going and he sits at her tombstone and he looks at the tombstone and this is the song that plays in the background. And it's full of all kinds of details that don't say anything about her, but the point of the song, the universality of the song is what makes it work. I'll just play a little bit of the song. I like cream in my coat And I like to sleep late on Sunday Nobody knows me like my baby I like eggs over easy but Flower tortillas. Nobody knows me like my baby. I Nobody knows me. Nobody knows me. Nobody knows me like my baby. That's why I love it, in case you don't recognize it. Now, that was the point. What a beautiful placement of the song, because he's sitting there by that grave, and you realize, man, that's true for all of us that are in relationships, you know? Nobody knows you like the person that's with you. And if that person died, all the intimacy, you know, you'd miss that intimate, intimate knowing. And the fact that he likes flour tortillas and eggs over easy and cream in his coffee, those are all details, but they're not details about the character in the movie, but they don't get in the way of the message. Nobody knows me like my baby. So in that context, I think it works perfectly. So did the music supervisor. Context is a great word. I, I use it all the time in taxi TV because yeah, there, there are no rules that are absolute and context means everything. And sometimes, yeah, it, it also creates a, a mood, a hollowness, a loneliness that uh, even if he was only humming the melody over that guitar, you would feel a certain percentage of it, lyric or not. The lyrics make it more poignant. Exactly. And by the way, have I sat next to Lyle Lovett on a, f a flight from New York to L.A.? Why, yes, I did. <laughs> <It was laughs> very, very, very nice man. Um, 
Okay, so let's take some questions from the audience. Question, here we go. This is from Mark Real. Ja, is your book, Writing Music for Hit Songs, uh, still in print? It was the first book I bought on songwriting. Magnificent. D did you go to copyright infringement jail for it? No, no, um, I, paid, I paid for all those examples. Oh, <laughs> I didn't understand what he meant. Uh, is, the book is still in print. Uh, it's, it's in what they call POD, which is print, print on demand. On. Yeah, but, uh, I mean, you can buy it. Yeah, I, I actually, I mean, you're welcome to buy it. I don't recommend the book because the new edition was written in 1996. So it talks about, you know, breaking new artists like Mariah Carey and stuff like that. So the examples are all dated. It's all true. All the stuff is great. But I more recommend the downloads on my website because they use more contemporary songs. They were all done in the last 10 years. In fact, I'm about to make a new product based on this workshop here. And so I, I reckon, because the same principles are in that, except that there are more contemporary songs. The book is great. It's just that the songs are all older because it was written way back then. American Music Maker says in the chat, I disagree too. Music supervisors often look for songs that don't necessarily spell out what the scene is about. Actually, right, they don't want those songs. That's not the point I was trying to make. Maybe I communi communicated it badly. But um, oftentimes they don't want, they call that being too on the nose. They, right. want, they want the emotion expressed. They want the feeling expressed. But oftentimes the details will get in the way, especially if you're a publisher, it makes it harder to pitch because you know it, it's like it only fits in so many slots. Not saying it's impossible, just saying it decreases the usability factor. Um, let's see, another question. Wow, you must be really good. Very few uh, questions in there. You're that or they're all stunned. <laughs> <laughs> right, that's it, they're stunned. <laughs> Nobody's got a question. I've never seen you guys without like a thousand questions. Boy, you must be really good. I think they are stunjai. Here we <laughs> go. Dan Weber's got a question. In a repetitive verse and chorus, does a change in the pre-chorus work as well as a change in the post-chorus? Yeah, absolutely. I just played that example from the weekend where the verse and the chorus were exactly in the same register and the pre-chorus went up. Um, another song that does that is Billie Jean, which was the number one most popular song in England, where the verse goes, du -du -du -du, she was just like a movie queen, da -da 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 -da. Billie Jean is not my love. But it's got the pre-chorus that goes, people always told me, da -da 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 -da. so absolutely changing the pre-chorus works just as well. Absolutely. Uh, a related question for Marion Laird. Uh, what is one thing you would recommend to make a pre-chorus pop? Uh, everything I said today in the music section, change the melodic rhythm, change the melodic pitch, change the harmonic rhythm. Those, all those things will make a pre-chorus pop. Um, somebody else asked a minute ago, uh, what's the length of a pop song these days? Gosh, um, I mean, it's certainly gone up. I don't know. I mean, you know, do you, I, I'm look, I'm going to go look, uh, in my most recent songs that I added on iTunes, and let's see what I've got here. Um, 329, 445, 405, 337, four minutes exactly, 336, 317, 331, you know. So I would say in the three minute area into the early fours, 
Okay, so it sounds about the same range that it's been for as long as I've been in the business, I think. Um, you, weren't I, the you weren't in the business back in the 50s and early 60s when everything was two minutes and something. Right. No, but I, I started in the industry in 1975, I believe, either late 74 or early 75. Um, I just saw one... How do you feel about unconventional song styles? I'm working on a list of famous and successful songs that were unusual song structures. Yeah, do you have a preferential song structure that's like good for beginners or developing writers they should work mostly in that structure or should they take a chance on, you know, oh gosh, uh, I can't think of the name of the structure, but you know, several other structures. Um, what was Ralph Murphy I always mentioned one? I can't remember the name of it now, but uh, talk to us about structures. Well, I will, and I'll talk to you in general about there. So, there are standard structures, obviously. And um, another writer that I was on a panel with once is a guy named Mark Selby, who's written four number one hits and 10 top 40 singles in Nashville market. I was on a panel with him in Nashville, and he said, I, I write down all these things that all these famous writers say, and I use them in my workshops. And he said, it's okay to break rules consciously when you know them, but you'll never succeed if you're breaking them because you don't know them. Right. So if you can write a verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge song, which is verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus song that takes it home, and you can write that, you know, any day of the week, then yeah, experiment with more adventurous structures. If you haven't, then you should learn to write verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus, till you can hit a home run with one of those. And before you start to experiment with other different structures, that's my that's my feedback. Um, Rondo was the other structure. Marion Laird, I think, put that in there. Uh, that's the one that Ralph always mentioned. It's funny, people always gravitated that because it's a cool sounding word, but not that many songs are done in Rondo. And uh, do you remember, did you ever sit in on any of Ralph's sessions in the grand ballroom where he went through the list of all the songs that were hits in the previous year and talked about their structures and the length and how much time on average he had university students do the research for him and it, it was fascinating i don't know that i would use any of it in my editor's bag of tricks but interesting to know you know that uh, two years ago that intros were 35 seconds and then last year they were down to 27 seconds intros have gotten shorter it's worth knowing i don't know that uh um you know it should be that people sit down and write that mechanically using that skill set or that knowledge base see if we have any more questions in here uh ken bearden asks can your songwriting abilities compete with today's market Mine or yours? <laughs> uh, I don't have any, so they got to be talking about you. <laughs> Me personally? Yeah. I, I, I've retired from songwriting. I haven't written a song since I left L.A. I have a pretty nice catalog that's still generating some income, thankfully. But uh, I basically, uh, I teach and I play in jazz bands. That's my life right now. So uh, I don't know what I would write if I wrote today. Uh, every once in a while, a student would bring, will bring something brilliant, and I'm tempted to co-write, but... I'm actually tired of the personal. This is just personal stuff. It's got nothing to do with uh, with what I'm teaching you guys. But I, I just got tired of the hustle. You know, yeah. a professional a professional songwriter spends at least three minutes promoting a song for every minute you spend writing a song. 
And I just, you know, I, I just got tired of that. Gene Newhall asks, uh, why not call the pre-chorus the bridge? Oh, there's a difference. The pre-chorus comes between the verse and the chorus, generally 95% of the time, every time. Whereas the bridge comes after two verses and two choruses, and then takes you to a whole different place. The pre-chorus is a set of, the pre-chorus should be called the bridge because it's really a bridge from the verse to the chorus. It would make logical sense to call it a bridge, but it's not, it's called the pre-chorus or sometimes the lift or sometimes the climb. Right. You know, but there are two different sections, and I don't know why is the treble clef called the treble clef instead of the strawberry clef. I have no idea. <laughs> it's, just, it's just what yeah, it's called. In, in Nashville, they tend to use the phrase "the lift" a lot more, um, yeah. whereas East and West Coast tend to call it a, a pre-chorus. Exactly. Um, some some people call it a beavers. Um, B-section, yeah. A B-section, yeah. Uh, Mark Selby didn't he co-write a huge hit with Tia Sillers? Um, can't remember. Anyway, he was on a panel one time with Tia Sillers at the Road Rally, I believe. Huh. Um, what is the best length of a musical intro? Whoa, that's a good question. That depends on what's the point of your song. If the point of your song is to, is it pitch? You're trying to get it to a music supervisor. You're trying to get an artist to record it. The shorter the intro, the better. If you're a band and you're trying to get your band signed or you're trying to get your band's more downloads on on itunes or more plays on spotify you know and you want to feature the band then you can have the band jam for 20 25 30 seconds in the beginning to to, to hold the interest because that's the objective but if it's the pure song that's the objective in terms of what you're marketing then you keep it short and you get right into it like if you listen to that song uh, if the world was ending that i played it's got about a three second intro it's just got a uh, it's got a piano chord and that's it. The song starts right away. I think most intros, and again, this is not an absolute, but most intros are not as interesting as the rest of the song. It's just delaying. Uh, you know, people always want to get to the red meat. I, I think I mentioned to you uh, that I had somebody say to me, uh, hey, Lasco, in your taxi TVs, you spend too much time telling stories, uh, you know, and talking about who's in the chat room. I think he's watching. I do a thing called the Quarantini Happy Hour. Monday is the regular show, which is more educational. The Happy Hour is just a hangout for those of us uh, with, you know, that have a desire to hang out with other like-minded people, I guess. And it started during the quarantine. So uh, I wrote back to the guys I told you before we went on air and said, hey, your website and your bio, it says you tell great stories. Why is it that you get to tell stories, but I don't? He <laughs> wanted me to get right to the red meat, you know, uh, which, by the way, for those of you watching that don't know this, we do take out the key points, the most salient parts of the videos, and we make them standalone. So if you go to the Taxi YouTube channel, you can see them as standalones. You don't have to, you know, watch me talking about catching gophers in my backyard. Um, although that is pretty fascinating. <laughs> I spent most of the lockdown growing tomatoes and catching gophers, Jai. I have one hell of a life. Fascinating. <laughs> we all do, my friend. We're all in that same boat. You know, and before you mentioned that you were a screener at Taxi, you were a screener for a lot of years, like 10 years or something, if I remember. Um, and I find it, I always quietly snicker to myself when somebody who's pissed off about a critique says um who is this 
person, you know, how are they qualified? I'm not talking about you, I'm just talking about in general. And I love it when the people in this chat room today have been totally enamored with the, the information you're delivering. It's great stuff. And yet somebody who gets a critique that they don't like because it hurt their feelings thinks you, and I mean that collectively, are, are an ass. <laughs> so it's all a matter of perspective, I guess, and context, my favorite word. You know what used to bug me the most? Now, you, you know how many songs we'd listen to at Taxi, right? In a, in a, if I did two, one or two shifts a week, what, 50, 60 songs, right? Plus all the songs I listened to from my own students and all the songs I was writing down there. And I, I'd get feedback from someone who'd say, you know, you listened to my song three years ago and you said the first line of the chorus needed improvement, but this time you said it was fine and I haven't changed it. Oh, I just saw that uh, talk, somebody talking about Taxi Online over the weekend. Uh, somebody, I, I actually think it was in our forum. Somebody said, the screeners don't agree with each other. Well, uh, I always give, <laughs> yeah, I give the example, you know, if five of us went to the Louvre and we all looked at the Mona Lisa and I said, all right, everybody give me 15 seconds or give me five seconds about what you're thinking about, what attracts you and uh, what do you not like about the Mona Lisa? Our answers would be largely different. You may love her eyes. I may love her lips. Somebody else may love the shadows. Somebody else may love, you know, the light on her cheeks. Uh, it, it's, there's not just one thing to notice about any piece of art or craft. It's many things. Well, I got a great story about inconsistency in the music. You'll love this one. I used to go to Nashville two, three times a year and pitch stuff to country artists. I had a little bit of success there. And uh, I, one of these guys that I got to see was the screener, the personal screener for a major artist. And I was coming to town and I made an appointment with him and I came to him and said, Jai, good to see you. What do you got for me? And I said, before, before you play anything, let me tell you what our concept for this artist is. This album, we're going to go back to Nashville roots and every song in this album has to be danceable. I don't care if it's a line dance or a slow dance, but you've got to be able to do some kind of dance to it or we're not interested in it for the album. And I said, okay, and I picked out some stuff. And you know, that time, unfortunately, he said, you know, I love your stuff, Jai. Nothing I hear today is good, but please come back next time when you're in town. I said, happy to. And he said, by the way, we picked out the first single for the album. Would you like to hear it? And I said, sure. And he puts it on, and I'm listening. And Fred flipping a stare couldn't dance to it. I mean, it was just so <laughs> undanceable. And I'm sitting there, and I'm literally, literally biting my tongue and I just want to tell him, but you said, but you said. And finally, I gently steered the conversation around to it. And he said, oh, yeah, you're right. This one isn't danceable. But it was just so good we had to make the single out of it. <laughs> so That's what everybody hopes for. You know, that's the one in a million thing that everybody hopes for. They, they don't put their money on the rules of thumb. They put their money on the one in a million exception, which, uh, you know, I hate to kill dreams, but... Uh, uh, it's the way I'm wired. I'd go for the rule of thumb every time. But then again, maybe, well, you know, the genius is going for the one in a million. Well, here's here's a little tip about that. If you're going to go for the one in a million, you better pitch it a million times. <laughs> Great advice. <laughs> oh, man. Well, we are at the end of our time. So speaking of pitching, oh, wow. uh, go ahead and pitch, pitch your uh, seminar one more time and give your web information and all that stuff. Thank you. It's Jai Joe Music, J-A-I-J-O-M-U-S-I-C, jaijomusic.com. All my programs are on there, how to get in touch with me, how to work one-on-one, -on -one, how to take my workshops. There's downloads on lyric writing and melody writing that are on there. Everything's on that website. And if you want to email me personally, it's just jai 
at jijomusic.com. And I would love to hear from you and, and get your feedback on this and see if I've been able to help. That's what I'm here for. Oh, you did a great job. Thank you, Jai. Thank you, Michael. Oh, that's so weird. My clapping's not coming up. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. I've got a technical failure. Well, when all else fails, pull out the backup. Oh, not that backup. <laughs> um, also, uh, I want to mention to everybody watching, if you're not a regular and you haven't hit the red subscribe button, please do. Please give us a like if you thought today's show was fruitful, and clearly you did. Jai, thank you so much, man. It was great to see you. Um, it's been far too long. How many years have you lived up there now? Uh, in three days, it'll be 15 years. Oh, my gosh. So, well, we've known each other for more like 25 years then, because I, I easily knew you for 10 years down here. Incredible. Easily. Yeah. All right. Thank you very much. I will see the rest of you guys tomorrow for the Quarantini Happy Hour right back here at 4 o'clock. Thank you very much. That's so weird. I see the music, but I don't hear the music. Oh, maybe... No. Oh, well. All right. With that, we're going out with no music today. Thanks, everybody. See you soon, Jai. Thank you, man. Great presentation. My pleasure, man. Good to see you, too. Bye-bye.